You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for January 16th, 2022, the second Sunday after the Epiphany. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Peter Walsh. It's based on John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So good morning again. Two things to start. The first is an apology for me. I wish my sermon was slightly shorter. I tell you, I worked really hard to do that, but I really, I struggled. Secondly, I invite you to hang in here with me because I'm wound up about this piece of scripture. Uh, the title of the sermon, at least working title when I look down, is Water into Wine, No JV Miracle. Okay, this is to say that I've been out of seminary almost 30 years, and I don't think until recently I ever understood the importance of Jesus' miracle of turning the water into wine. I always thought of it, as the title would say, as a JV miracle, kind of a starter miracle, a little bit of a warm-up miracle, kind of like the pitcher in the bullpen just before he goes out to pitch on the mound, zings a few into the catcher just to make sure he's got it ready. Always thought of it, as my mother used to say, as a minor miracle. Now, I believe that Jesus is turning the water into wine is the most underrated miracle, the most misunderstood miracle uh, in the New Testament. And perhaps this piece of scripture that Father Justin just read is the most underrated passage in the whole of the Gospels. For me, it was a case of mistaken identity. I read the miracle uh, sign with synoptic eyes synoptic being the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I did not read the story with Johannine glasses, John being the the Jesus storyteller that we're listening to this morning. First, I misunderstood the high-key, low-key vibe. By that, I mean my so-called emotional intelligence made me emotional dumb. I judged emotions and not theology. So we all know that in the synoptic gospels, there is this sense of awe and excitement and energy and enthusiasm around the marvelous aspects of Jesus's miracles. We have crowds pursuing Jesus, people ripping off roofs in order to drop their, their friend in so that Jesus can touch him. Uh, he, the, the, the demons go into the swine and they run down the hill and they leap off the cliff and they drown themselves. Jesus walks on water. He storms the, he calms the storm with his hand and the disciples are utterly dumbfounded. It is awesome, awesome, it's some awe. So in John's gospel, the whole story is told with understated discretion. So take a look at the miracle we just heard. In the miracle at the wedding of Cana of Galilee, the only reaction that we hear about comes from the steward, the sommelier, right? And this is a wow moment for the steward, not because of the miracle, but because of the taste of the wine and the fact that they've kept this wine to the end, right? He has no idea where the wine came from. This is not a revelatory moment for anybody, for the steward at least. So I mistook this understated discretion to mean that this miracle was no big deal. I also misjudged by number. So if you take a look at the Gospel according to Mark, which we just spent a year with, the first 10 chapters, nearly half of those 10 chapters have to do with miracles. That's 200 
verses out of 425 verses have something to do with the miracle. And in John's Gospel, there's only seven miracles. Three of them are in the Synoptic Gospels. Three are the same type and could be in the Synoptic Gospels, but only the miracle at the wedding of Cana in Galilee has no parallel in the Synoptic Gospels. It's the most unusual miracle that Jesus does, and I misjudged its uniqueness, since it was only in John and nobody's life was saved. Remember, the raising of Lazarus is only in John, but I mean, he raises his dead friend from the dead, so that's clearly a big deal. But I misjudged this as being no big deal. Instead of seeing it as a unique thing to teach, I saw it as a unique, unique thing to kind of cast aside. So I also misjudged the miracle by its location in the gospel, right? Since it's the first of uh, his miracles, and it seems like his mother talks him into it, as I said, I thought it was kind of a warm-up. I always thought of it as fruit taken from the vine too early. It was good, but I bet it would have been really great if she had waited until it was completely ripe. So what I didn't realize is that first matters, right? It's the beginning of chapter 2. It's the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in John. This is a statement miracle. This is not incidental. It's not happenstance. It's not because his mother seemed to talk him into it. This is an announcement miracle. It's a foretaste. It's an opening speech. It's a policy statement. Okay, the problem was I missed the sign, which actually happens to me when I drive fairly regularly. I certainly have no idea what's happening on Google Maps. I miss this all the time. But this sign I missed was hidden in plain sight, right? And I just didn't pay enough attention because I read it with synoptic eyes. I saw it, I dismissed it, drove right by it, and it's right there. It's the end of what Father Justin read, verse 11, and the sign says this. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. There it is. Sign, revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So, what's in a sign? Everything, turns out. So, G, uh, John uses the word sign instead of miracle, and the difference is nuanced and it's huge. So, when John says sign, he's talking about something of the utmost theological importance. This means it's a big deal. So we all know from the Synoptic Gospels, which is what we listen to most of the time, that miracles are acts of power, almighty power, that break into our playing field, in defeating Satan, healing people, bringing in the kingdom of God. That's what miracles are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in John, that is not the primary purpose of the miracle. The primary purpose of the miracle is not an act of power to establish the kingdom of God. The primary purpose of a miracle or a sign is that it is a symbol of what God is doing in Jesus the Christ. So these signs are flush with spiritual symbolism. And as it said, signs revealed his glory. So the revelatory, the book of Revelation, we talk about revelation meaning the unseen God can be seen and we can learn about in the revelation. And the revelation is the revelation of who Jesus is, the glory, his, his godliness, and what God is doing in him. And that we receive these signs so that we might believe. 
So in John's Gospel, John doesn't use the word faith. And when he talks about belief, what John is talking about is that we might come to soul know the truth about Jesus and that our spiritual life will have life in his spirit. That spiritual life that Jesus gives, the life that Jesus gives is a spiritual life and that we will live in his name or in his being. Now, you all know that reading the Gospel according to John is a many-layered affair, right? Uh, we can study this book for our whole life and never exhaust it. And one of the reasons of that is that everything is pregnant with meaning. We always hear the story on one level, which is the human story. The story of a, today it would be the story of a groom who ran out of wine and Jesus got him some more wine. But there's always the either higher or deeper level. There's the, the other level of what's happening on a divine level. And in the gospel, these are all mixed together, even if we do not understand exactly the symbolism of the words. Okay, so let's set the scene. What is a wedding like in antiquity during Jesus' day? Now, you may go to a wedding today and think, holy smokes, that was crazy. The wedding industry is nuts. Can you imagine how much money they spent on the flowers? Well, in a certain sense, that's completely true. But in another sense, our current weddings are nothing compared to the weddings in Jesus' day. So in Jesus' day, a wedding would last a week. And the bride and the groom did not go on a honeymoon. They stayed home, and everybody stayed in the village and celebrated together. It was a village celebration. Now let's talk about the role of wine. It would not be possible to conceive of a wedding without wine. This is not like having a birthday with no birthday cake and you, you stick a candle in a piece of meatloaf. This is something far more profound. So wine was, as it is today in Judaism, the symbol of celebration. Wine is the celebration of life. Hey, there's the Lord calling right now. He likes my sermon. Okay, so. Uh, in the Hebrew scriptures, wine is, wine is symbolic of the presence of God's beatitude, of God's blessing. And the absence of wine, to run out of wine, is to be utterly bereft of God. If you run out of wine, God has, God has left you. That's the sensibility that's happening here. And so for the groom to run out of wine is beyond a social embarrassment. It's beyond a party ender. Uh, and it's beyond shame, and there would be tremendous shame to run out of wine. And as we all know, in Jesus' day, there's no wine store down in downtown Cana. Now, today, there is a wine store in downtown Cana, and some of you have been on the bus with me in the Holy Land pilgrimages, and uh, I, I look out, and I can't remember which pilgrimage it was, but we were driving through Cana, and Cana is a suburban town, and it's kind of down at the heel, as they say. And the bus was stuck in traffic, and I looked over, and I saw Cana wedding wine, we ship. <laughs> and uh, our Palestinian guide, who was kind of, Iyad, was kind of dozing, and I, I touched his shoulder, and I pointed to this store, and he said, shook his head, and he said, horrible wine, just horrible. <laughs> okay, so back to, the, back to the scriptures. There are six stone jars purification jars, and we're told they're 20 to 30 gallons. That means when the wine is all done, there's somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. 
A bathtub holds 80 gallons, so we have basically two bathtubs full of great wine. More wine than is necessary. This is, an, this is a super abundance of great wine. And here's the key. The gift of fine wine, the gift of godly wine, is the perfect first miracle for Jesus to perform. And the reason is this, and here's the key to the whole story. So in the Old Testament, the divine gift of wine in great quantity and great quality is a sign that the messianic kingdom has arrived. In other words, the wedding at Cana of Galilee is a messianic banquet. That's the big deal. This is a messianic banquet. And we hear about this in Isaiah. We hear about it throughout the scriptures, but in Isaiah, they run out of wine in chapter 24, impending judgment of God. They need a Messiah. The wine dries up. The vine languishes. All the merry-hearted sigh. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has reached its eventide. The gladness of the earth is banished. And then the Messiah, the prophecy of the Messiah, this is what we read at Easter, and perhaps you'll remember this from the Easter reading, is this messianic feast, and it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And so we have here this Cana messianic banquet all set up by Jesus' mother. Now, there's more. In the moreness, I'm just going to touch upon the moreness, and it is that Jesus is also the bridegroom. Nowadays, it's the job of the bride, to, bride's family, to put on the, on the wedding banquet. But in Jesus' day, it's the job of the bridegroom to supply the wine. And when Mary says to Jesus, they have no wine, she is putting Jesus in the place of the bridegroom. And theologically speaking, the bridegroom is God. When you hear bridegroom in the Hebrew scriptures, it's God. And so, here in this passage, Jesus is God, the bridegroom. But then there's more. The messianic feast does not take place at just a party. It takes place at a wedding feast. And in the scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures, over and over and over, a wedding feast is a symbol of God and God's people coming together. That is what will happen at the end of time, according to the book of Revelation. God, the bridegroom, will invite us, the holy city of Jerusalem, the bride, to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so the wedding portion symbolically matters. And then there's more. So we have this character of the steward. Now, we don't have this at our current weddings, not as they had in antiquity. We now have wedding planners or three wedding planners. I've been to some weddings where you need three wedding planners. Man, these babies are complicated. But in the scriptures, as they tried to describe this, yesterday I went to look at different translations of steward, and I got steward, master of the feast, master of ceremonies, ruler of the feast, head waiter, the person in charge, master of the banquet, head man. It is the job of this person to make sure that the party is great. That's the job. And what the scripture is saying is that Jesus is the Lord of the feast. Jesus is the master of the banquet of divine life. 
He is the steward of divine good times. It is his job to make sure that we celebrate life and being alive. Now, we see this in John's Gospel, right? John says in chapter 11, I, I came, you know, that you might have life and have it more abundantly. At the Last Supper, he says, uh, I tell you these things that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. So with all of this good time joy, why is it that so much of Christianity is dour, judgmental, and without joy? And I believe the reason for that is that we read too much of the Jesus story with synoptic eyes, with synoptic story. So the, the story of Jesus, as told in the Gospel according to St. Mark, is embedded in all, in Mark, I mean, excuse me, in Matthew and Luke. And so we hear this over and over. And Mark has a different point of view on things. What if the primary way we thought of Jesus was with Johannine eyes. What if our image of Jesus was that he came to bring joy? What if we said that Jesus was a man of fine wine? What if we really believed that God loves an awesome party? The first miracle of the wedding in Cain of Galilee brought joy and laughter and celebration. It extended the party and made it better. Imagine if the story of the wedding at Cana of Galilee was told in Mark or in Matthew or in Luke, where there is awe and wonder and enthusiasm and excitement for the miracles. Imagine if we did not tell this story with understated discretion. We had the same awesomeness. Actually, Rowan Atkinson, Mr. Bean, has a little comic clip of this. When you go home, type in Mr. Bean or Rowan Atkinson, Wedding at Cana of Galilee, and it is laugh-out-loud funny where he talks about the servants in the kitchen after this miracle, and he says in his English scriptural King James Version, man, this guy is good. I mean, <laughs> we would celebrate the wedding of Cana of Galilee as an icon of the joy of divine love. It would be an icon in everybody's dining room. At every Christian wedding, we would have a toast to the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Fine wine would be a symbol of our Lord. We would toast Jesus as the provider of joy, the Lord of the spiritual banquet in which our souls and hearts feast upon, right? I believe that when we all die, which is what we are all going to do, we are all going to come before the being of God God's being being capital L for light, capital L for love, and capital L for life. We are going to come that, and like angels, we will be filled with wonder, love, and praise. And that is exactly what Jesus is trying to tell us. Jonathan Cott, Elizabeth's great friend, who is, hi Jonathan, a Sunday by Sunday, never miss the stream, a Thursday by Thursday, never miss the podcast. After he heard the last podcast about this, which uh, got its title from Father Justin saying, God loves a good party, Jonathan wrote me this text. Did you know in the Sufi tradition, wine is the symbol for God's intoxicating love? The wine cup, the Sufi seeker's heart. <clears throat> the cup bearer, the spiritual guide. So for us, Jesus is the cupbearer. He is the spiritual guide who seeks to provide our hearts 
with God's intoxicating love. In John, the coming of the Messiah is not a reason for asceticism and denial. It is a reason for joy and for celebration. Jesus brings new life. His coming brings a new creation. It is not dour or sour, pinched or prissy. It's joy and laughter and dancing. It's a celebration of life. On the last, on my first weekend, when I should have graduated from college, didn't quite get out when I was supposed to, I went to a wedding. It was at the Four Seasons in Boston. Two of my Jewish friends were getting married. One of them was a hockey player, Julie Starr. Larry's in the back, he knows Julie. She married Jay Duker. I had never been to a wedding, I don't think. I had never been to a Jewish wedding. At a certain point in the wedding, they put the bride and the groom on the chairs and they danced in a circle while they sang in Hebrew that song that is to life, to life, to life. And I looked at the tables, the young men holding the chairs, dancing in a circle, the women dancing in the opposite direction, and the older people holding up their glasses and toasting to life and knocking back the great fine wine that the Starr family clearly bought for the wedding. That is what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about we are lucky to be alive. We are lucky to be living in the life that Jesus brings, in the divine life, and it should be joyous and it should be celebratory. And man, our world needs us because we live in a world that is depressed. So let's grab a hold of it and let's live like a good Jewish wedding. You can find more sermons on our website, www.stmarksnewcanon.org.